I was given a suggestion that I should speak on stress and hypertension. However, I think that most teachers on yoga talk only on hypertension and stress. There is something more which the practitioners of yoga and teachers must know and that knowledge will help them to improve the quality of consciousness, the quality of mind and the quality of philosophy, whether it is stress or hypertension or even AIDS, the quality of consciousness and philosophy which is at the basis and therefore yoga and tantra deal about the basic facts of man's existence. For them, for yoga and tantra, man's existence is beyond body and beyond the mind. It is something which we have to understand sooner or later. Even the scientists in our century are talking about the forms of energy, the invisible forces, the forces which can influence matter, the forces which can link one dimension of space with another dimension. I'm talking now about physics, the concept of energy in the modern physics. If that be so, then the building block of matter is not the matter. Up to the age of Isaac Newton, from the time of ancient Greeks, the concept was that the matter was the building block of universe, that the matter was the building block for everything we see. But after that, the modern physics, the latest theories in modern physics have not only exploded this myth, but a time will come when the scientists will declare emphatically that matter does not exist. What to talk about? It's building capacities. Matter does not exist. And if matter does exist, like you and me and everything else here, if matter does exist, then it is the form of energy. It is the Shakti. It is the energy which is perceptible, which is visible which is operating and manifesting in this creation in the form of men and women, animals and rocks and mountains and planets. The visible spectrum, the visible form of creation cannot be the definition of creation. The visible form of sun and the moon, 
the visible form of your bodies and my body cannot be the definition of myself. I am something more than what I appear to be. You are something more than what you appear to be. But then what are you? This is the question which Tantra, Yoga, in particular, and Indian philosophy in general has discussed for over thousands of years and has come to different conclusions and has defined the nature of reality and has defined the nature of operating Shakti in different words, in different explanations. It is in this context I want to talk to you about the two forms of Shakti, two forms of energy which are immediately useful for our spiritual transformation, immediately useful for the fulfillment of the practices of yoga to which we are committed. These two forms of energy in Tantra are known as Mantra and Devata. I'm using the classical Sanskrit terms and I'll try to explain them as far as possible in the modern scientific context because I do possess certain amount of knowledge of the modern science also. I would not say a, a little amount of knowledge. I have studied the philosophical processes and the philosophical thinking of the Greek philosophers for over two, three thousand years as to how they were struggling to define the creation, to define the idea, to define man's existence. In their own way, they did define. And when the crisis in the process of thinking came about, Immanuel Kant just stepped into a new philosophy called the philosophy of pure reasoning. But still they could not come to a point where the germ of existence was so subtle, so powerful that it could be contained in a place smaller than an atom. They couldn't conceive. Whereas the philosophy of Vedanta said the truth, the ultimate, the source of creation is inherent in each and every speck of this creation. The creator does not live in any stratosphere. Whatever the creator is, he is here. He is here. He is everywhere. And that is called Shakti. Shakti is energy. And this is a process of evolution, a process of creation, a process of becoming. Always there is a becoming. There is nothing which is there is nothing which is static. 
there is nothing which is created all of a sudden. There is no such scientific process. There is no such scientific reality. It cannot happen. It is an illogical process. It is an unscientific process that the creation can just drop a thought or an idea or a matter or a being or a planet or atom or molecules. Everything is subjected to a process of becoming. And this process of becoming is an expression of Shakti. Tantra found that through the mantra and devata, we can explain very well the immensity of the Shakti operating in individual plane. What is mantra? It's not the name of a particular divinity. Because certain philosophies in yoga and tantra did not even believe that there is anything like divinity. The sound is eternal factor and it is in the form of vibration. It exists in the form of frequency and this sound is one form of energy. Whether the sound is a visible form, as I am talking to you, or you may sing a song, these are the finest vibration in the primitive form of creation of matter. And this sound is form, is one form of energy. You can increase the frequency of the sound. You can decrease the frequency of the sound. When this sound increases in frequency, then the destruction of matter takes place, or rather, disintegration of matter takes place. Another form of energy is called devata. Devata means a tangible form which can be perceptible, which can be visible, which you can see, any form. You draw a triangle on the blackboard, that is a form. Or you draw a bird or a tree or a flower on the blackboard, that is a form. And that form is not just what you perceive with your eyes. That is a, that is a circuit, that is a circuit of energy itself. And therefore it is said in Tantra that every form is Every form is filled with the potential energy. And if you create one form on a piece of paper, you are transforming certain forces of energy on the piece of paper. When you are creating a drawing or a piece of art on a blackboard or an, on a canvas, on a piece of paper or drawing paper, what exactly you are doing is you are rendering the invisible and the transcendental or unseen forces or the powers or the circuits of nature into one particular form. And that form is again reconvertible into energy. This energy moves in the form of impulses. And these impulses can take different forms. Every time you produce a sound. Every time 
you create a figure on a piece of paper, you are creating a substantial and a visible form of energy. And both of these, the sound and form, are linked with human mind, intrinsically linked with human mind. And if this is true, that a form and a sound is intrinsically linked with the human mind, that means either the human mind can influence the form and the sound, or the sound and the form can influence the human mind. It is not possible now at, in the meeting to be able to tell you what is human mind, or what is mind, or what is the mind. And of course, I would make it very clear to you when I talk about the mind, I am not talking about that mind which you study in your modern psychology. Certainly not. What we study in the modern psychology are forms of mind, forms of consciousness, forms of emotions, forms of awareness, forms of uh, interrelated understanding. Mind is different than what psychologists have understood so far. And this mind, which is also a very important form of Shakti, is related to the form and the sound. Sound, what is it? In yoga, you call it Shabda, or you call it Nada. Nada. N-A-D-A. -A, nada. When you etymologically explain the word Nada, it means flow of particles. And therefore, the sound which we produce through our tongue, or the sound which is produced mentally too, or the sound which you produce by whispering your lips, or the sound which you hear in the dream, or the sound which you hear in deep meditation, or the sound which you hear during the moments of hallucination, some sort of hallucination, that sound in different realm is a flow of particles. And these particles relate to a quality and the form of energy. We have been hearing in modern science about particles, uh, about waves. You understand waves? We talk about the waves, we talk about the particles, so it will not be very difficult for you to understand. Nada. Is it a flow of particles or is it a flow of waves? If it is a flow of particles, then it is very close to the concept of light as you talk about in the modern physics. Of course, the modern physics has not yet concluded whether the light is particle or is a wave. They have both the views yet. But of course, in Tantra and Yoga, we have come to a conclusion, what is it? Is it a particle or is it a wave? About the sound, we always use the word sound wave, sound wave. We never say sound particle, it is particle, it's not wave. Well, if you want to discuss this matter with the modern scientists, if you can, do it.
And you can definitely convince them that the sound wave is not a sound wave, but it is a particle which appears to be like a wave because the intensity, the speed, the consistency is so great that the particles are seen in the form of waves. And ultimately, therefore, that wave of sound can be reduced in the form of particles. How? When the particles move at a greater speed with a, with a definite intensity, then they appear to be waves. Now, reduce the speed. Now, reduce the speed. And if you are able to reduce the speed to a considerable degree, you will see them as particles. You can see a movie film. Have you seen a movie film with 24 uh, frames per second or 36 frames per second? They go with a definite speed, 24 frames per second. There is a sequence. There is an event. There is a systematic movement of the limbs, of the actions, of laughter, or uh, whatever it is. But if you reduce the speed from 24 to 16, then you see... <laughs> and the same thing is about the candle. You have seen the candle. Everybody has seen it. It, is, it appears to be one homogeneous action. The, la the candle is burning. And there is the flame. And you can see the flame. The flame doesn't seem to be erratic. It seems to be an action, a complete action. But if you analyze properly and if you can reduce the perception, if you can reduce the quality of perception, your perception, then you will find that the flame of the candle is not a homogeneous performance, but it is in small actions called particles. Small events being uh, the small actions linking being linked together, they create one event or one vision or one perception. In the same manner, the perceiver of an event is the mind. It is through the mind that you perceive a sound. It is through the mind you perceive a form. And through the mind you perceive a form, through the mind you perceive a form, an object or a sound, in a particular way, because your mind is set, is your mind is regulated, your mind is fixed in a particular way. If you change the mind, if you can reduce the speed of the mind, if you can increase the frequency of the mind, let me say so, if you can increase the frequency of the mind and decrease the velocity of the mind, then what we'll find? You'll find sound is not a wave, sound is a particle. And when you perceive the sound as a particle, that is called a mantra. Om, as you know, is a mantra. Gayatri is a mantra. And there are many other mantras many other forms of sound. And these sounds, they relate to different spheres of man's perception. Either the mind influences the sound, or the sound influences the mind. In Tantra, they say, the sound influences the mind.
And therefore, the practices of mantra yoga are accepted as an important practice in Tantra. In Tantra, they say, if you practice a mantra for some time, then the mantra influences the mind, diminishes or decreases the velocity of the mind, and thereby increases the frequency of the mind. And when the frequency of the mind is increased, immediately your consciousness is delinked from this sphere and is linked with a different sphere. And you can link yourself, you will not very carefully now, you can link your mind with various spheres of this universe. This particular sphere of the universe to which we are aware is one, just one, not the total. The universe, the world, are the things that you are aware of is not everything. This is one state of your experience. This is not the state of total experience. There are other areas in this universe. There are other areas in this universe to which you can link your mind, to which you can attune your mind. But how to do it? Not just by thinking. Not just by uh, pressing the mind, not just by compelling the mind. You can't compel the mind by auto-suggestions. You can't force the mind by indoctrination or brainwashing. Because mind is not a bundle of emotions. As I told you, mind is not a bundle of thinking. Mind has nothing to do with thinking. Thinking is an Thinking is an expression of a particular state of mind. It is, it is an offshoot. It is a result. It is an expression. Just as the light is expressed by the bulb. That's all. In the same way, mind does project emotion. Mind does project thinking. Mind does project various types of emotions and feelings and experiences. But that is not the mind. And it is this mind through which deeper and greater and abiding experiences can be had. It is through this mind that one can transcend this uh, gross universe. So, the mantra has to be taken into the practice. This is called the sound. In the same way, you take one picture or a photograph of anyone. You turn, you transform the photograph of the object into finer waves, into finer particles, and then you transmit it. And when you transmit it, it is in your room, on the television screen. And it is there, thousands of miles away from here, because the form and the sound, as I told you, they are forms of energy. And this form which we have given is in order to elevate 
the mind and its conditions. The second point is Devata. Devata is a form. It has been misunderstood by various traditions for many, many centuries. And they have not used the word Devata. They say idol. As such, those who believe in Devata, they are known as idolaters. This is what we call uh, uh, a religious view through which you can abuse others of oh, an idolater. But I'm not talking about religion, please remember, and if you don't know anything about me, let me tell you, I don't believe in any religion, nor do I believe in the gods that are spoken by religion. Not now, from the age of four. I refuse to believe in religion, I don't believe in religion, and I think that is the cruelest, most cruel things that mankind has invented for the destruction of humanity. And if world will be destroyed, it will be destroyed only by religions. You may not believe in what I say, but from this you understand, I don't talk about religions. Nor do I support any religion. Nor do I preach any religion. What I'm talking here is that in yoga, the evolution of mind, the transformation of mind, and experiencing deeper things in life, they can be done by certain ways. And one of the ways is Devata. Devata is a form. And this particular form is embedded in human consciousness. This form is based on the archetypes. This Devata, the form, is embedded in human mind, is uh, inherent in human mind in the form of archetypes. And these archetypes, whatever you understand by archetypes, I don't understand. These archetypes are very primitive. They are millions and millions years old. They have lived with man from the day of his advent or even before that. I believe that even animals, that is, highly evolved animals and others as well, have their own archetype. And these archetypes are in a very subtle form. In us, they would be, they would be in not only billions and trillions, but trillions of billions. These are the archetypes. In yoga, you call them samskara. In the Western countries, we call them karma. Although you have not tried to analyze when you say karma, oh, that is his karma. That is how they say it. But karma here doesn't mean action. Karma here means the, deep, the deeply embedded uh, archetype in the personality, uh, in man's structure. And these archetypes are so funny. If they are to be expressed, if they are to be brought into the forefront on the level of upper consciousness, then their figures will be sometimes very, very horrifying. 
have you ever seen uh, the pictures photographs of dragons have you ever seen the photograph of kali i'm only giving you two examples now that is the form of archetype when the archetypes are developed on the upper surface of the human mind or human consciousness then they can be seen in these forms and in their basic form they are in the form they are in the type of forces and these forces are responsible for the evolution of mind and matter we have when we were in schools we studied about the darwinian theory of natural evolution and of course there is nothing to disagree but at the same time there is something which is not clear after all why does this happen after all why does this happen there has to be a process of linking in evolution there has to be a constant link from one state to another state but we find that in the process of evolution of matter and mind there is a missing link there is something which is missing which you can't explain and this particular part which you call the missing link is the archetype and this archetype comes even to animals at some time for a certain period of time like a fraction of a second a monkey sees something which is not there well you haven't remembered you can't remember maybe you were also a monkey you don't remember what you thought about it animals like elephants monkeys highly developed animals particularly at a particular time not necessarily all the time they have some sort of hallucination they have some sort of experience for a period of time for a fraction of a second they see something which is not there and as a result of this particular perception as a result of this particular experience of what we call the expression of their archetype the evolution is just pushed a bit further and therefore in meditation either spontaneously or through the practices when you happen to come across certain experiences certain forms uh, certain divinities or certain animals or a light or you can see the whole universe rolling or maybe many things like that it means you are expressing the primitive archetypes from the dark side of your consciousness to the upper point of your consciousness and thereby you are giving a thrust to your evolution this thrust of evolution comes in the form of experience and this experience is some people call it divine experience others call it transcendental experience others call it hallucination some call it atmagyan some call it samadhi some call it universal experience others call it cosmic experience some people hear sounds others can see forms some can see dragons some can see kali some can see a man or a woman with four hands and beautiful face that is devta and this devta word does not merely stand for a beautiful personality it also stands 
for an experience of something which is hideous, which is ugly, which is frightening, which is just frightening. If you happen to see that dragon in your meditation sometimes, or if you happen to see a form in your meditation which is very ugly with his true, with his teeth protruding outside and with one horn up in the hair. You know what are you going to ask in the morning to somebody? I saw this dream, was it good or bad? No. No subconscious experience is bad. No superconscious experience is bad. Whatever you see, you see a part of yourself. Or whatever you see, you see a part of the infinite universe or the infinite reality. That is called archetype. And these archetypes are seen by us in the form of devta. And therefore, in the practices of yoga, in practices of tantra, these two important elements must be associated. Every yoga aspirant or every body who wants to evolve and have deeper and greater experiences, who wants to transcend his body, who wants to transcend his mind, and who wants to transcend these fleeting and painful experiences of life, it is necessary for him to pick up for himself one devata and one mantra. Spiritual evolution is not a result of intellectual understanding. Sri Aurobindo said, you know Sri Aurobindo, he said, intellect is the barrier, transcend it. He again said, reason is the barrier, transcend it. In the Upanishads also it is said, neither by intellect, nor by academic qualification, does one see his own self. But one sees his own self by raising, by elevating the mind, by changing the frequencies of the mind, by decreasing the velocity of the mind. When the mind becomes not just one-pointed, but for the time being the mind loses touch with time and space. Never in man's life time stops. Never. It is the eternal law of universe. Time never stops. But when the mind stops for a moment, the time stops. And when the time stops, when the time stops, then there is a great experience, a very great experience. Remember, if you know, when the first atomic explosion took place in South America, and the director of the whole project was a German scholar, Dr. Oppenheimer. When the first atomic explosion took place, about which the scientists were not sure what is going to happen, at that time, that doctor, the great German scholar, he remembered 
one of the sloka, one of the stanzas of Bhagavad Gita. He noted down in his diary, if thousands of suns shine together in the sky, this is the translation of that verse from Gita, if thousands of suns shone together in the sky, and the brilliance which they would produce is the brilliance which is experienced, which is seen by one who has split the atom gears. For the last two decades, I have brought this message of yoga to every part of the world. And the more people think about the role of yoga in the life of man's physical, mental and spiritual evolution, the more they are convinced about it. Decades ago we thought and we were told that yoga was a kind of black magic and that it was a type of supernatural acrobatics, drinking nitric acid, chewing the nails and the glasses, sitting over fire and burning oneself on the fire. And therefore, the world could not take advantage of this great science. In the recent years, the men of science, intellectuals and scholars have been dedicating a lot of their energies in understanding the deeper values of yoga in relation to human evolution in every sphere. In the modern countries like America, Australia, Japan and Europe, also in India, teams of scientists, doctors and men who are authority in psychology have shed immense light on the science of yoga. They have come to a kind of conclusion that the system of yoga is a great vehicle in the hands of humanity through which he can accelerate the evolution. And at the same time, man can transcend the frontiers of his consciousness. The frontiers of his consciousness, that gives a meaning to the world. And we can perceive everything differently. We can face 
individual social or international problems with a different quality of consciousness. We can also face the pains of the physical body in a different way altogether. In the coming three days, we will discuss more about the systems of yoga, which have lived through the accidents of history and the ravages of time due to man's incompetence to accept and emulate what is good for him. It is true that many times mankind has made mistakes and has sacrificed the best of the principles in the fury of passion, and that has happened to the world many times. With the disappearance of the Atlantis civilization, yoga had to face a historical and unending crisis. For over 45,000 years or even more, different countries were not in a position to patronize this science and save this great tradition. It was India that protected this science, maintained the tradition of this knowledge without any break. Political situations did not destabilize the science. Economic difficulties did not stand in the way. Religious upheavals and cultural crisis did not matter to this tradition of yoga in the country of India. Himalayas became the frontiers and Ganga became the channel of distribution of this science to the whole world. And therefore history has it that yoga faced a crisis in Atlantis civilization and for over 45,000 years we tried our level best to give to mankind this precious knowledge of life and existence. It was accepted by the people from time to time. But you know very well, those of you who have studied history, things did not fare very well. In the last few decades, man has faced such tremendous problems not only on religious or spiritual plane. He has faced problems on physical, psychological, and social planes. They tried methods after methods. 
But ultimately they came to this conclusion that the root of the problem is somewhere else. If only mankind could defreeze the whole process of its existence in mind, he would know where exactly the pebble fell on the water. This process of defreezing the entire consciousness, the whole existence that includes past, present and future, if only you could defreeze your total existence, you would know where did the pebble fall. And then you could work out a way to the solution of problems. We should understand yoga in relation to our personal evolution, and this is very important. When I went to States in 1968, I met many of the scientists. I told them, look here, I am not teaching physical culture. Not that I'm against it, I'm for it. I'm not teaching you a physical culture, nor am I teaching you a science of breathing. And surely I'm not teaching you a way where you can close your mind and where you can close your eyes and transcend the tragedies and difficulties of life. No. My opinion and my realization of yoga is that the practices involved in the yogic system, they are absolutely scientific. And they go to the very base of man's existence on physical, mental and spiritual planes. I encourage the people in different countries to conduct scientific investigations as to what the science of yoga was like. And they started doing lot of research on this subject. Today we have with us more than 1,000 researches on brain itself. In the last 30 years, the researches they made on the brain and influence of yogic activity on the cerebral structure were about 500 researches. In the last two years alone, more than 500 researches have been conducted. What it means to the activities of the brain when you practice pranayama and when you practice the science of pratyahara and meditation, is it merely a religious practice? 
Or is it more than that? Surely scientists have told us it's more than that. You talk about the intellectual training. You talk about training of the mind of the person, but there is a greater depth in the science of yoga. It's not intellectual, it is basic and fundamental. Why not step out of the frontiers of the mind? Is this mind a final state of evolution? Is there no other area of consciousness that could function better and give you more tangible decisions? How are you going to develop that structure of consciousness? Is it possible that the consciousness could be developed by religious or intellectual means? Or is it possible that man could transcend the limiting barriers of his personality by an independent method? Yes, science has an answer for this. Science has investigated the possibility of developing those silent areas of mind and brain. Those silent areas of mind and brain which relate to the evolution of Kundalini, which relate to the evolution of a dynamic pattern of human consciousness that does not merely depend on the knowledge derived by sensory channels. All along we have been taught that the brain and the mind can be trained through the medium of the senses, through the perceptions available, intelligible to the senses. Yoga has completely a different theory altogether. Isolate the brain. Isolate your consciousness. Disconnect the pathways of sensory stimulation. Brain, the mind, the consciousness can function independent of sensory existence. We do not know the way. We do not know the way definitely, therefore our knowledge depends upon the information that we get through the senses. Our perception, our cognition, our decisions depend upon the area of sensory channels. And if one could isolate his brain, the consciousness and the mind he could enter into a dynamic, 
more powerful state of understanding, of realization, and that's how the yoga starts in life. The practices of pranayama, the science of breath, as you call in English, the science of pranayama has a direct link, has a direct effect on the functioning of the brain, the most intricate, the most sophisticated functioning of the brain. And it has a theory of its own that is based on the scientific principles of the day. There are hundreds and thousands of archetype patterns in the brain. They are primitive. They are basic. They are there in human beings, in animals, in vegetable kingdom. These millions, I'm using the word millions, these millions of archetypes in the brain will have to be tamed, will have to be reorganized, and this archetype of brain will have to influence our actions, our thinking, our decisions, our feelings, and awareness as a whole. You know very well, and if you don't know, let me tell you. These archetypes in the brain are known as mandalas. These mandalas are of peculiar geometrical pattern. And there is absolute possibility of reorganizing them. Languages can be learned by organizing these patterns. Behavior can be transformed. A culture can be reconstituted. A civilization can be given a new turn of action by understanding these geometrical mandalas which are in the brain, and that is the constitution of your mind. We have been trying to transform our lives. We have been trying to create a state of metamorphosis in our personality, but man has failed in spite of his efforts for centuries and centuries. Intellectual process is no answer. The answer lies in your personal practices. The practice of pranayama is not the science of breath. The practice of pranayama is the science of universal energy, and the science of universal mind, and the science of universal time, space, and matter. That is the literal meaning of pranayama. Maybe in few years, 
The books on pranayama will carry a different title altogether. They will not carry the title, the science of breath. They will be called the science of life force. It is not the air you breathe that constitutes pranayama. It is the vital, universal pranic energy which is present in man, which you will have to dynamize, which you will have to redistribute. That is the science of pranayama. 